fructose signaled the body through increasing uric acid to make and store fat. And it happens to help keep us humans alive, giving us the ability to survive when we didn't have access to food or water. We're going in the wrong direction. And so what we're talking about here is basically a mismatch between our genetics that have been refined over literally millions of years and the influences on our physiology brought on by our environment. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so excited about today's episode. It is a surreal one. (laughs) I always am just so in awe when I get to interview people that I have been looking up to for so, so long. And not only that, the fact that this is actually my second episode with Dr. Perlmutter is just so incredible. I am so, so grateful. And the topic is one that I am becoming increasingly more and more interested in, and that is the role of fructose and uric acid in our metabolic health. I recently interviewed Dr. Rick Johnson for his book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. I haven't aired that episode yet, but that is the first book that really got me interested in this topic. And then when I saw Dr. Perlmutter's book, I was so, so excited to dive even deeper into uric acid. Having him on the show was incredible. He is so intelligent, so kind, and I really think you guys are going to learn a lot in this episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash uric acid. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram. Also find the announcement post there. And again, enter to win something that I love. I have a a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code CLEANFORALL20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Okay, so backstory leading up to this conversation. A few years ago now, I think, I listened to an interview on Peter Atia with Dr. Rick Johnson, and that was the first time I really started diving deep into the metabolism of fructose and how that affects metabolic health. Fast forward to a few months ago and, or actually probably a little bit more than that now, but Dr. Johnson was coming out with a new book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, who, and I actually interviewed him for it recently. And in that book, I learned more about not only fructose, but the connection to uric acid And around that same time, Dr. David Perlmutter actually wrote the foreword for that book, and he had a new book coming out called Drop Acid, The Surprising New Science of Uric Acid, The Key to Losing Weight, Controlling Blood Sugar, and Achieving Extraordinary Health. And when I realized this book was coming out, I reached out to his agent because he had been on the show before for Brainwash, and I was basically begging them, please let him come back on the show because I'm just so obsessed with this topic. I think people are becoming more familiar with fructose, but the uric acid connection is just something that is, I mean, it could be profound in its implications. And I mean, nobody is talking about this until now. (laughs) So I am so, so excited to have you back on the show, Dr. Perlmutter. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to be here. And I would agree with you that, you know, this is all really new and very exciting information. And like yourself, I was introduced to the topic by listening to that Peter Atia podcast with Dr. Richard Johnson one day when I was running. And I ended up 
doubling up on my run just to hear the end of the podcast and then the beginning again and did what anyone else would, I guess, do. I called Richard Johnson immediately when I got home. Well, I grabbed a shower first. Then I called Richard Johnson and said, hey, that this is really exciting stuff because it really connected some dots for me that were kind of hanging chads for an awful long time. You know, we've known since 1970, published in the journal The Lancet, that fructose threatens metabolic health, despite what the corn refiners would like us to believe. We know that fructose is a powerful threat to metabolic health in terms of diabetes risk, hypertension risk, obesity risk, but we never fully understood the how and why it happens. And Dr. Johnson made it very clear how it happens. And I then explored, interestingly, why it happens. And it happens for very important reason, that is to keep us alive. It's a survival mechanism to help keep us humans and our primate ancestors alive, giving us the ability to survive when we didn't have access to food or water. And suddenly what that did for me was, and we'll unpack all the mechanisms in the uric acid connection in a moment, but what it did for me was I think life-changing because I've started looking not just at this issue, you know, fructose consumption, but all of the the mismatches that we experience in our modern lives that threaten our health in terms of how these things that are now potentially bad may have actually, and the reason they persist today is because they may have actually been survival mechanisms for us. Having a raised blood sugar, raising our blood pressure, increasing our body fat, how all of these things through the context of survival and our ancestors may be looked upon as actually being good things, though you know, becoming insulin resistant, we talk about frequently, is such a terrible threat to our health. Health, but in the uh, context of our ancestors, becoming insulin resistant and then raising the blood sugar proved to be a powerful way of powering up the brain and allowing us to remain clever and pave the way for our survival. So, it really is um, game changing. You know, ultimately, we know that one of the things that fructose consumption does, and we'll talk all about this, is it increases the production and the level in our bodies of this emergency signaling pathway that is uric acid. Our uric acid elevates and it's yelling to our bodies, prepare for winter and do all the things that our bodies need to do to prepare for food scarcity in our time of food plenty. And therefore, it's a mismatch that's leading to health issues. Actually, a, a broader question about the whole narrative of all of this, because you talk in the book about how it takes, you know, 40 to 70,000 years for significant changes in our genome. So these changes, because you just mentioned, and like you said, we'll, we'll dive deep into it, but you just mentioned how these changes had beneficial effects for our survival because clearly things are not panning out and we're having metabolic syndrome and issues now from these changes. Do you think we'll adapt to that? Or have we reached the point where it's not something we're going to adapt our way out of? Like, will there be a future mutation or change to address how these things are not working? Or do you think it's all downhill? <laughs> all downhill. Things are going downhill. I mean, when you look at the numbers in terms of whatever, uh, obesity will, you know, currently affects 50, uh, rather 33% of American adults, and in the year distant future, in the year 2030, 
that's eight years from now, that'll be 50% of American adults, not overweight, but actually obese. Right now, 10.5% of adults in America have type 2 diabetes. 33% are pre-diabetic. That's 88 million adults. Our life expectancy is declining year after year, and that began pre-COVID. So, you know, we're going in the wrong direction. And so what we're talking about here is basically a mismatch between our genetics that have been refined over literally millions of years and the influences on our physiology brought on by our environment, the variables, the sleep we get, the exercise, sunlight, food, a very important informer to our physiology as to what's going on around us, what's our environment. So we're experiencing this environmental evolutionary mismatch. Our genome has been so refined to keep us alive and to pave the way for our survival under a given set of circumstances that have changed so dramatically beginning about 14,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture and in the past 200 years with the refinement of sugar, the production of sugar that is you know, virtually exploded globally from sugarcane and now more recently from corn, high fructose corn syrup. And these are challenges to our more primitive, if you will, a physiology that is dictated by our genes. So we can, you know, to get these things back in line, we're not going to be able to change our genome anytime soon that I'm aware of. And the Again, you mentioned the amount of time it takes for these genetic changes to take place. And I began to puzzle over this mismatch and wrote an, uh, my first article on this topic 50 years ago, half a century ago, published in the Miami Herald in 1971 when I was 16. And I concluded that paper by asking the question, what about those of us living today with this outdated machinery? You know, and that calls to question our ability to change rapidly enough to adapt to our current environment. That's not going to happen. So, you know, this is the, the thesis behind the so-called paleo movement, is to revert our lifestyle choices to be more in line with our paleolithic genome. You know, and that's not always easy to do, but we know now some of the big players. And and what we identified and what both Dr. Johnson and I, and I have talked about in our books is the signaling pathways that are, are brought about to lead to increased body weight, increased blood sugar, increased blood pressure. And the primary signal for that these days is fructose. There are three inputs to uric acid, fructose, alcohol, and a type of chemical called purines. The biggest player that we are exposed to is, of course, fructose. When we recognize that more than 60% of packaged grocery store foods contain added sweeteners and that by and large, these are from high fructose corn syrup, we begin to get a sense, sense as to you know, how we are bombarding our bodies with this signaling mechanism, fructose. Yes, it's a carbohydrate. And yes, we can deconstruct our foods to look at fat, protein, and carbs and micronutrients like minerals and vitamins. But at its core, what food does is serves as a signaling mechanism. It serves as a way of informing our bodies. Food is information. And what fructose, which we got only in the late summer and early fall, informed our ancestors about 
was the fact that winter is coming. That fructose signaled the body through increasing uric acid to make and store fat, to decrease our metabolism, to affect how our mitochondria work so our metabolism would be decreased so we wouldn't burn as much fuel, to raise our blood sugar so that we could power our brains and find food and avoid being eaten, and even raise the blood pressure so that we would have a bit of a ability to resist becoming dehydrated. So this is a long-standing pathway in humans that evolved somewhere in our primate ancestors between 14 and 17 million years ago during what was called the middle is called the middle miocene period when the earth was a bit cooler and therefore access to food was a little bit sketchier and those individuals of our ancestors who had this mutation so that they had higher uric acid level when they consumed fructose were the ones who survived and they passed that genetic predisposition for a higher uric acid level onto each and every human walking the planet today. We're all geared. We have a thrifty genome. We want to make the most out of the calories that we come upon. We're all geared to make as much fat and lock it up as best we can to prevent us from dying of starvation. Nowadays, we're triggering that pathway 365 days a year for the winter that never comes. When I say winter, I mean the time of food scarcity. So, you know, this is uh, what's going on. And, and when we call it out like that and people begin to understand that this is a pathway in each of us, in our physiology, that is telling us to become metabolically dysfunctional because that was a survival mechanism. When you get that, then you begin to understand, hmm, what are the markers? Uric acid, simple blood test. What are the inputs? Fructose, 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 and also alcohol and purines. But by and large, it's the fructose. It's the reason we shouldn't be drinking soda. It's the reason we shouldn't be drinking orange juice and apple juice. Those are very powerful, concentrated sources of this signaling molecule called fructose that tells us to make fat. There's nothing natural about a carton of orange juice. Our ancestors didn't suddenly come upon groves of trees that were growing cartons of apple juice or orange juice. Didn't work that way. We ate the whole fruit, and that far less stimulated our ability to make uric acid and therefore increase body fat production. So again, this validates the whole notion of the of the paleo approach, trying to emulate the lifestyles of our Paleolithic ancestors, meaning prior to agriculture, as a way of bringing our genome back into alignment with our, our environment. Evolutionarily, when we were consuming fructose, when the winter was approaching, and so we were preparing to stock up on fuel in our bodies, essentially. So do the issues with fructose require fructose in a calorie excess? Like, do you have to gain weight with the fructose to create the problems? Or does fructose independently of weight gain cause issues? Well, that's a, it's an excellent question. So fructose in its metabolism then 
it's not just uh, the calorie component of fructose, it's the actual metabolism of what that fructose becomes that stimulates the body to make and store body fat to turn down metabolism and actually increase blood sugar production. So it isn't the fructose, isn't that we're loading up on the calories that are derived from fructose like you might you know, see from eating a high carb meal or eating glucose. That's not how it works. If you block the metabolism of fructose by inhibiting a specific enzyme called fructokinase, then the downstream damaging effects actually don't happen. We don't see the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, for example, the increased production of fat, the insulin resistance, even the hypertension. Those things are not happening when we block fructose metabolism, either at the stage of the initial enzyme fructokinase or further down in the production of uric acid by blocking actually the the production of uric acid by using drugs that happen to have been developed uh, as an attempt to treat a disease called gout, which is characterized by having a high level of uric acid. So when we inhibit enzymes involved in the production of uric acid, then those downstream effects actually do not manifest. That's been seen in laboratory animals. It's been seen in human interventional trials as well. So, you know, I think that answers answers your question. The, The good news is that, yes, we can limit uric acid production by reducing our fructose consumption, that's for sure, but we can also emulate the or imitate the action of the drugs that are used to treat gout with things like quercetin, a a bioflavonoid. Quercetin acts exactly the same as uric acid, as uh, allopurinol, the drug does, in terms of inhibiting uric acid production and has the benefits of those interventional trials then that are seen to reduce hypertension and elevated blood sugar and fat production that are seen when fructose is given to test subjects along with inhibition of the uric acid production. One more question about the fructose, and then I'll jump more into the uric acid. So this is a question that has been haunting me, and I was wondering it while reading Rick's book, and then I was wondering it while reading your book. You talk about how the metabolism of fructose actually creates less energy or depletes energy in the cell. And normally, like with something like AMPK, we see it as a good thing to have an energy depletion state. So why does fructose depleting energy in the cell, why is that not a good thing? Like why is it not similar to AMPK activation? Well, AMPK actually enhances fat metabolism. So, you know, it is, as you mentioned, what we are trying to do. We want to we, we enhance AMPK while at the same time, we want to reduce the action of its evil twin, which is AMP deaminase. So when we activate AMP kinase, which is what we're all trying to do, I mean, we do that with exercise, we do it with the drug metformin, we do it with quercetin, for example, we are actually doing a couple of things. We are reducing the generation of glucose in the liver. We call that gluconeogenesis. That's why it's an anti-diabetes strategy. But we're also enhancing fat metabolism. We're liberating fat, mobilizing fat, reducing fat storage, and enhancing fat metabolism. So in those ways, uh, you know, this is the reason we want to keep AMPK lit up. AMP deaminase has the exact opposite activity. AMPK, uh, AMP deaminase is instructing our bodies then to reduce 
fat metabolism, increased fat storage, ratchet down generally metabolic activity so that we don't burn as much energy and we're able to conserve energy and actually stimulates the production of glucose at the level of the liver, again, gluconeogenesis. Now, so we have this teeter-totter, this balance between AMPK on the one hand, the good guy, and on the other hand, AMP deaminase, which in context of our modern world is not really what we want. One would think there might be a circumstance in which we'd rather have AMP deaminase lit up And that would be, for example, if we were getting ready to hibernate. If you're a bear and you're getting ready to hibernate, then by all means, you want to make as much body fat as you can, store it up. You want to ratchet down your uh, metabolism. That's the way you're going to survive for the months that you are hibernating, by burning, by having this fat resource. And that's exactly what happens. A bear feasting on berries has got his or her AMP deaminase turned on and AMP kinase is shut down. And it turns out, interestingly, that what controls which way we go is uric acid. So as uric acid is elevated, this is the switch. It shuts down AMP kinase and it turns on AMP deaminase. And as it shuts down AMP kinase, we make more blood sugar, we make more body fat, we lock up our body fat, and we reduce our metabolism. That's the danger of having an elevated uric acid. And, you know, interestingly, I think mainstream medicine still to this day, although we're watching it change very, very quickly, and as such, you are way ahead of the game here, mainstream medicine focuses on uric acid really in the context of gout almost exclusively, at least here in America. Globally, there's certainly a very big interest in elevation of uric acid as it relates to a variety of metabolic components like elevated blood sugar, elevated body mass index, elevated blood pressure, dyslipidemia, elevated triglycerides, et cetera. So there's you know, kind of a global concern for elevation of uric acid, but in America, not so much. You know, we'd like to pigeonhole it in terms of gout, end of story. I mean, to this day, we are seeing, you know, patients that I refer to their physicians for other reasons happen to have an elevated uric acid level. You know, they come back either on allopurinol or being told, hey, you know, a pat on the head, don't worry about it, you don't have gout. Well, that's not what our, our literature is telling us. Our literature is telling us that, for example, having a uric acid over seven milligrams per deciliter, which is common. I mean, the average uric acid level, the average in America is six. Having a level just over seven is associated with a 16% increased risk of what is called all-cause mortality over an eight-year period, meaning becoming dead for any reason, a 39% increased risk of what is called cardiovascular mortality, basically meaning dying of a heart attack, a 35% increased risk of dying of a stroke. And for every point elevation over seven, and again, seven is very common, for every point elevation, there is between an eight to 13% increased risk of all-cause mortality. So these are real numbers and they're real important. As it relates to my specialty being neurology, one recent study published in the uh, Annals of Rheumatic Diseases in 2018, interestingly, that's a gout journal, (laughs) followed people for 12 years 
1,600 people, and those with the highest level of uric acid had an 80% increased risk of dementia, a 55% increased risk specifically of Alzheimer's disease, and a 166% increased risk of what is called vascular or mixed dementia in correspondence with this elevation of their uric acid levels. When we, again, revisit the connection of elevated uric acid to high blood pressure and high blood sugar, we see that those are powerful threats to the brain. And then when we get that, we see what uric acid is doing then to these metabolic markers. It's no wonder then that we can understand why high uric acid level, formerly only appreciated in the context of gout, is now associated with diseases of the brain, for crying out loud. And what is really interesting is that, and I wrote about this in Drop Acid, that we've known this since the late 1800s. And this was written about by Dr. Alexander Haig, wrote a book about this, about elevated uric acid being a powerful risk factor well beyond gout. He talked about dementia and depression and so many other, and high blood pressure, and did experiments on blood pressure with uh, uric acid in the late 1800s, for crying out loud. But and that information was lost until about 20 years ago when researchers, primarily in Japan and also Turkey, but now in the United States as well, began to revisit this and have made some really startling and empowering, if I may, discoveries. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like BrainTap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Anna Kabeka, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. So a question about this connection and causation correlation 
uric acid's actual role as an independent risk factor. Because I was looking at a, a 2022 review last night that looked at the U-shaped mortality curve of so many different diseases and how it connected to uric acid. And they were proposing we shouldn't actually be looking at uric acid levels because they were saying it had to do more with comorbidities and gender and that it was ultimately a, a U-shaped curve. So the actual role of uric acid, because you talk about this in the book a lot, you point out how it's an independent risk factor, how it often precedes these diseases. Is it causing these diseases or how do we know it's not a correlational factor or to be even super controversial and play devil's advocate, it's antioxidant benefits that it has. How do we know it's not protective? Well, this is a very interesting question and I'm glad you asked it. I, I will tell you, you're not the first person to ask that question. In fact, in 2016, this was the, the title of a research study, and that is Uric Acid in Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to a Central Player. Meaning, you know, originally it was noted that in people with high blood sugar, high blood pressure, obesity, that, oh, coincidentally, their uric acids are elevated. Kind of, we knew that, and it was sort of known in passing. We didn't really pay much attention to it because, of course, uric acid only has a role to play as it relates to gout. But then researchers began doing experiments in humans where uric acid was the only variable. And they were lowering uric acid with drugs that inhibit an enzyme called xanthine oxidase, which is the final step in the creation of uric acid basically giving people, as I mentioned earlier, gout drugs and seeing improvements in their blood pressure, in their blood sugar, and even in their body weight. And I put these studies in the book. So, so yeah, we noticed it was sort of correlational in the past. There's a lot of correlative data. I've, I've already reviewed some of that for you. But here's human interventional data that shows when you manipulate uric acid exclusively, that you see changes in these very important metabolic parameters like blood sugar and blood pressure, for example. So important for you know, general health and, and uh, really important as it relates to the brain and the heart and the kidneys. So that I think, you know, it, it's a great question that you ask. How, how do we know that it just doesn't happen to be interesting in a correlation that we just happen to notice this elevation of uric acid along with these other metabolic problems. I think that study that I mentioned, that research paper from 2016, really takes us away from the notion that it's an innocent, I love the way they called it, an innocent bystander that just happens to be there. Well, no. Nature in her wisdom typically multitasks the various the types of measurements and things and in our bodies, the variables. And as such, you know, for us to think that uric acid is just a gout consideration, you know, is really quite, with all due respect, myopic. I mean, just because that's how we learned it and the quick fix for the elevated uric acid was allopurinol, end of story, takes a little bit more of a deeper dive now when we realize it's a much, much bigger issue. You know, we, we name things and we, we tend to pigeonhole them like testosterone is a male hormone, you know, and progesterone is pro meaning for gestation and that's all it's for. And cholecystokinin has only a role to play in the gallbladder. And we realize that 
you know, that just is just not what we know. You know, we know that women's bodies make testosterone and need testosterone and men make estrogen and cholecystokinin receptors are in the brain for crying out loud. So, you know, we have to take a step back and realize maybe we were a little bit narrow-minded in our understanding and that, you know, there's new data out there and we have to accept that and now move forward. And ultimately that, as we mentioned earlier, is empowering because it's giving us a brand new and very important tool to rein in this pervasive metabolic mayhem that we talked about originally. I mean, it sounds like a lot of things we've experienced in analyzing the causes of health and thinking things are just, like the study said, innocent bystanders when maybe they are playing a much larger role. So can you have metabolic syndrome and not have high uric acid levels, or is it pretty much usually always elevated? No, of course, metabolic issues are multifactorial, have to do with things like the ratio of brown fat to, to white fat or beige fat. Certainly diet is important. You know, what the research is showing is that when uric acid is brought under control, it has a significant effect on, on the panorama of metabolic issues. There's nothing that's really one factor. Maybe pregnancy, I guess there's one thing that causes that. But aside from that, you know, there's a lot of thing that's things that ultimately conspire to form our various disease states. So you mentioned, you know, multiple factors going into these high uric acid levels. So the fructose connection, also the alcohol, the purines. So what is the role in actually addressing this? Maybe we can talk a little bit about the purines in foods. Does that play a major role? Do people need to be looking at their purine intake? I'm not going to say it plays a major role. It's playing a role. Purines are the breakdown products of the DNA and RNA found in cells. Foods that are very hypercellular, liver, for example, and kidney, tend to create more purines. You know, frankly, the reality is that in your body, two-thirds of the purines, generally most people that are floating around, are actually from your own breakdown of your own muscle tissue, for example, when you exercise. And only a third come from the diet. If you go online and try to read about dietary recommendations for gout, for example, it's all about limiting purines. It's all about avoiding, you know, the purine-rich foods. Again, the, the organ meats, the game, the sardines, anchovies, etc. The reality is, there's always a pushback in being derogatory towards sugar, especially fructose. And I know, you know, I think we can understand why that might be. There's great interest in making sure we keep eating a lot of sugar. It's worrisome how that comes about. But anyway, beyond that, so the gout diets have always been low purine diets. But the reality is that even dating uh, to the late 1700s, our sugar consumption had already begun. And well into the 1800s when gout you know, was fully recognized, we'd already started eating more sugar than in the history of humankind, especially in you know, various European countries, especially in England, our, our sugar consumption began to, along with alcohol consumption, increase quite dramatically. So, you know, if you were asking the five sources of uric acid, they would be number one, fructose. Probably number two would come in at being fructose. And number three, I'd have to settle on fructose. And then four and five would be alcohol and purine. So it's a player. There's no question it's a player. And the reason we talk about it in drop acid is because if an individual were to still have an elevated uric acid and he or she was really 
a circumspect as it relates to reducing their fructose consumption, then, you know, then purines become something you want to look at, as does alcohol. You want to look at those things. But I would tell you that by and large, people who become really careful with their consumption of fructose, and by that I don't mean necessarily fruit, we'll talk about that in a moment, but eliminate the fruit juice and the sugar-sweetened beverages and you know, the other sources of fructose and the, the 60 plus percent of foods in the grocery store that have fructose in them, that really helps a lot. And when you add in 500 milligrams of quercetin a day and some vitamin C, maybe around 500 milligrams, this is going to be what is needed for most people. I think most people, you know, we know that there are genetic, what we call polymorphisms, genetic variations in people that in some people could cause them to be at risk for higher uric acid. There's something called the URAT1 gene, and people have variations of that gene, and some people are genetically more predisposed. We know that people from uh, Micronesia, Polynesia have more likelihood of having higher uric acid level. But that said, if in fact you've done what we've talked about, and then uric acid is still elevated, then you want to target the purines. Then you want to choose wine over beer. Beer is an issue because it has alcohol, but it's also very rich in purines because it's made from yeast, which is very cellular. So a lot of genetic material, nucleic acid, so higher levels of purines. And then, I mean, there, there are people that are even treated. I mean, in Japan, people are treated without gout, with gout medications to get their uric acid levels down just because, A, they're at risk for gout, and B, they might have high blood pressure. They're treating people who have high blood pressure and they have elevated uric acid with gout medicines in Japan now with good results. So is it stored anywhere? So like if you were to check your uric acid throughout the day, is it like blood sugar where it would fluctuate? Yes, it does fluctuate for reasons entirely unlike the reason that your blood sugar fluctuates during the course of the day. It fluctuates based on your activity, based upon the foods that you're currently eating. You know, drink a, a glass of Coke and your uric acid is going to go up very, very quickly. So will there ever be a time that we have continuous monitoring available to us for uric acid? I was wondering that. Yeah, you think so? I can tell you that's going to be something we should anticipate in the future. But I don't think that it will be as valuable as CGM. So, you know, CGM allows us to know, you know, moment to moment, the variations of our blood sugar based upon any number of inputs. I find it extremely valuable. Uric acid, I think, you know, testing it every couple of weeks is reasonable. Fasting in the morning, uh, not the day following a real vigorous exercise protocol, so that you don't break, you know, not a day that you've, you, you ran a half marathon the day before because you're going to break down a lot of tissue, elevate your purines, uric acid level goes up. That's typically what we recommend. Once you achieve a good level, which is below 5.5, and that's kind of important because the so-called normal level is below 7 milligrams per deciliter. Please understand that that is a level that relates to gout. You know, that's the level above seven milligrams per deciliter. Then uric acid begins to crystallize in your body, begins to precipitate. And that's, you know, form crystals in your joints. That's what gout's all about. And that is not what the best recommendation is as it relates to the, to the metabolic consequences of elevation of the uric acid. So we want to get our levels below 5.5. 
around the 1920s uh, in America, uric acid levels averaged 3.5. Now they average, as I mentioned earlier, 6. So these increases in uric acid have been in lockstep with our increased consumption of sugar. And even table sugar, that's 50% fructose right there. It's not the glucose that's raising uric acid. It's uniquely the fructose as it relates to that input, that sugar input. I read in your book that you did that letter recently with Casey Means. I've had her on the show for continuous glucose monitors, so I will put a link to that in the show notes for listeners who'd like to learn more. Well, that's right. We wrote an an op-ed in MedPage Day. Actually, it was published February 21st of 2021. It was an open letter to President Biden that really just called out the fact that United States Department of Agriculture recommended that we allow up to 10% of our calories in our daily diets to come from sugar, which ha- has no scientific support. It's not what you know the, the scientific inputs to the US, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, think about that for a moment, they're the ones in charge of growing corn, uh, helping our corn, refiner, uh, corn growers and refiners you know, with their, their revenues. They're the ones who supply that information to the USDA, and then they come up with a recommendation of 10%, which is, you know, the requirement for sugar in the human diet is zero grams per day. That's not very much. (laughs) We said, let's get it down to 6% of total calories. You know, there's been no change. So what do we do? Well, we get out and we, we speak, we write books, we go on a podcast like this with you know, and you know, I, I see, I see that you have featured so many of my uh, friends out there who, are, you know, we're basically coming ultimately to the same conclusions that, you know, diet is is everything. Whether it's, you know, Maria Emmerich talking about protein sparing modified fast, or um, Paul Saladino, all these great people, Saladino, who are talking about basically what diet does to our physiology, and more importantly, and this is the take home message. How does our diet interface with our genome? That's what is key. And suddenly, out of the blue, we have this mismatch between what our wonderful gift, our genome that has been refined, you know, literally for a couple billion years, if you really want to take it back. But, you know, as it relates to primates over the past 14 to 17 million years, and more recently, humans, 200,000 years constantly refining our genome to pave the way for health, longevity, and our ability to survive during times of adversity. Suddenly, yesterday, we developed agriculture. And just this morning, we developed the ability to refine sugar. And this has bombarded our genome with information that it's never experienced. We're suddenly activating a pathway, a survival pathway in our body to prepare for winter. We're elevating uh, our fructose consumption that's becoming uric acid that is screaming to our physiology, make fat, store fat, reduce metabolism, raise the blood sugar to prepare for winter. And it's the winter that will never come because we're not going to have food scarcity. And instead, you know, this is a pathway that's operating 24-7, 365, and is responsible uh, for our, you know, these rampant rates of obesity and hypertension and diabetes that, you know, no one needs to call it out because we all see it. 
Now I'm just thinking about, because you're talking about, you know, the foundational role of diet compared to these, you know, genetic adaptations and, you know, how we're mismatched. So taking, for example, the uric acid lowering jugs, allopurinol, since that's actually inhibiting an enzyme, is that sort of like taking a genetic adaptation in a pill? No, the genetic adaptation is, that would be countering a genetic adaptation. The genetic adaptation is the production, uh, the high level of uric acid that we have. Let me take you back. 14 to 17 million years ago, our primate ancestors didn't really make a lot of uric acid. Why? Because they had the gene, an active gene, to create an enzyme called uricase that broke down uric acid. Then there was an environmental pressure that lasted about a million years. It was called the Middle Miocene period when the earth became cool and food became scarce. And that was a powerful selection pressure for selecting for survival those animals that could make a little bit more fat. Not that they became obese, just a little bit of an edge, a little bit more body fat, and could ratchet down their metabolism just a little bit and could create just a little bit more blood sugar to power their emerging brains, their enlarging brains over time. And that genetic change was the loss of the uricase enzyme. So these primate ancestors of ours lost the ability to break down uric acid and that allowed them, that signaled them to be able to make that little bit more fat and make blood sugar, et cetera. Every human walking the planet now has inherited that uricase gene enzyme issue such that we don't have uricase. Humans don't have uricase. Other mammals do, and their uric acid levels are about a third of what ours are. So we have this superpower that we inherited from our primate ancestors, this superpower that allowed us to survive, allowed us to make just a little bit more body fat, and we pulled it off and survived to this day. Now suddenly we develop agriculture and our food shifts away from fat and protein to being much more uh, involved with carbs. And then much, much more recently, we develop this ability to refine the carbohydrates in 0.004% of the time that humans have been on the planet. Not enough time for us to, to really shift our genome and therefore shift our physiology to adapt to that. We're kind of stuck with this outdated machinery, as I, I wrote about 50 years ago when I wrote a paper on this in, in the Miami Herald half a century ago. Speaking of the carbs, on the flip side, low carbs and ketones, what is the significance of ketones competing with uric acid? Or do they compete? Or what happens with that? Well, interesting. What does what are you telling your body when you're in ketosis? To use fat for fuel and ketones. Yeah. You, what you're telling our body, the signal is, and what, how is it? That it's, you're starving. <laughs> There's not food. You bet. Your body's in ketosis. It's telling our bodies that we are starving. And what does that do? It, it, pull out all the stops. We've got to do everything we can to survive this time of food scarcity. That's what happens when we are deprived of food. And as such, as you might expect, a powerful signaling mechanism gets amplified, and that is uric acid. So when we're deeply in ketosis, our uric acid levels go up, and that activates these pathways to take us away from AMP kinase, oddly enough, and favors us to ratchet down our metabolism and does indeed tend to lock our fat up. So, you know, this is kind of new and important information. 
Is it worthwhile to get into ketosis? You bet it is, but it's much more important to cycle through it and then allow your body to recover. Staying deeply into ketosis for a long period of time is associated with threats from cardiovascular disease, a variety of issues that are really kind of threatening to our health. I am all for ketosis. I'm all for certainly uh, the notion of even daily getting a, a little bit of a bump in terms of our body's ability to generate ketones via the notion of time-restricted eating, as an example. So I think the more we learn how to, again, emulate the the environment and the influences of our Paleolithic ancestors, not our Neolithic ancestors, that will be the best way of relating to our genome, of honoring our genome. So to clarify, and interfacing the potential with our issues DNA of keto, are they parallel life. and similar to the issues created by uric acid or are they friends? You guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Raising uric acid and creating the issues. I think they run in, in parallel. Where they differ is there's really no benefit at all ever, unless you're starving, to having an elevated uric acid. Whereas we know that you know periodically being in ketosis is a good thing as it relates to uh, reducing mTOR activity, as it relates to transiently improving AMP kinase activity in the short run. And you know, certainly as it relates to mitochondrial biogenesis, as it relates to mitophagy, the degradation of defective mitochondria. So, you know, I'm certainly all in. But if you read a James Clement's book called I love James. I'm really good friends with him. <laughs> yeah, called The Switch. You know, he very clearly takes us between, you know, it's like there is you're not gonna know this, but because you're too young. There was a group in the day called The Birds, and they wrote a, They did a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. And it's it, uh, it, a time to build up, a time to break down. Anyway, it was a very popular song, rock and roll, back in, in my day, way before your time. Anyway, it turns out that that song was written based upon a biblical 
section in, uh, in Ecclesiastes about, you know, how it's good to cycle between building up and breaking down, time to make war, time to make peace, all these things that they, they, they sing about in the song. And so it is, you know, with human physiology, we need a time to build up and a time to break down. You know, certainly in our younger years, our teenage years, we're building up as we should be in order to grow. But breaking down is, is also just as important. You know, we need to activate these pathways of autophagy and secondarily downstream or included under the umbrella of autophagy becomes mitophagy, the ability of, that we have to break down mitochondria that are defective, our energy producers. But let me digress from that for just a moment. Important to understand that there's more going on in the mitochondria than just the fact that they make energy. The mitochondria are involved in determining whether a cell will live or die and directly do that by influencing enzymes that are called the caspase enzymes that are involved in determining whether the cell undergoes pre-programmed suicide that we call apoptosis or not. When the mitochondria are dysfunctional and they're excessively producing free radicals and not producing enough energy, ATP energy, it signals these pathways that ultimately activate the enzymes that kill the cell. In areas of the body where the cells can regenerate, like the liver, for example, not as big of a deal as it would be, for example, in the brain. So a lot rides then on keeping mitochondrial function where it needs to be so that this uh, apoptosis pathway isn't activated. And importantly, then we want to have healthy mitochondria. And one of the ways that we do that is by allowing mitophagy to happen, whereby we activate pathways that both identify and then rid our bodies of defective cellular parts, like defective mitochondria. And this has wide-ranging implications because our immune cells, for example, are really quite dependent upon mitochondrial function because they're so metabolically active. And there's a lot of research going on right now in understanding how our bodies identify immune cells that are functioning as they should or are not or have become senescent or old as a consequence of their mitochondrial dysfunction. So there's a lot of research going on in in terms of what is called senolytic therapy, allowing our bodies both to scavenge as well as then to rid themselves of these old or less functional immune cells. And again, their immune dysfunction is is characterized by deficient function of their mitochondria. So when we activate autophagy. We're helping our immune systems. If we never cycle between being perhaps close to ketosis or even just making some ketone bodies not fully into ketosis, if we never cycle between the two parts of the switch that James Clement talked about with you on the podcast, we never give our bodies that opportunity to identify the defective cellular components and get rid of them. And therefore, we basically just accumulate debris, which is really one of the key hallmarks of aging, not only a hallmark, but a contributor to our biological aging. Again, we need a time to build up and a time to break down. And you know that's the beauty of 
being involved in, in programs that help us make that happen by being involving ourselves in intermittent fasting or even time-restricted eating. We want to really do our best to allow that autophagy to happen and allow our bodies to you know, recycle that, uh, those components that are broken down during that, that uh, process of autophagy. I'm so obsessed with all of the science of autophagy. And, and that was something I found really fascinating in your book was you talked about how uric acid actually stops autophagy as well. That's a major role there. One other big topic to maybe tackle. So speaking to the context of everything and how, how there's nuance to all of this, what do you think is the role of gender when it comes to uric acid? I was reading about the the correlations and oftentimes the, like with the all-cause mortality, some of those would disappear when it would just be um, found for men, for example. And you talked about the role of alcohol and how it correlates to uric acid and that it didn't apply to women and wine. Like why, why is that happening? Why are women maybe not experiencing as many of the negative effects as men? It's a great question. And there's a fairly straightforward explanation for that, and that is that estrogen helps the kidney release uric acid into the urine. So women, by and large, have lower uric acid levels in comparison to men, and that goes away after menopause. So, you know, that, that's something, it, and it actually does tend to explain a lot. And, you know, getting back to the alcohol, I just want to make sure that your listeners understand what the the data is telling us about that and these are you know evaluation of tens of thousands of people who complete what is called a food frequency questionnaire in other words evaluating what people eat over a period of time and then looking at various blood markers of whatever you want to measure in the case of uric acid what has been noted is that women who consume wine their wine consumption is associated with a lower uric acid level. In men, they don't really have much change in their uric acid level when compared to wine consumption. Hard liquor in men and women, more so in men, uh, is associated with an increased level of uric acid, but by far and away, the worst player is beer. Beer has alcohol and also has purines, again, from the brewer's yeast. So that's very, very cellular, lots of nucleic material broken down into purines. What is that doing? Dramatically raising uh, uric acid and telling the body, make fat. So there's very good rationale for understanding where the beer belly is coming from. The beer belly is a manifestation of activating an alarm system in the body, telling it to make and store fat very quickly to prepare for a time of caloric scarcity when you may not have any food. And, you know, one other area I just want to unpack briefly because I think it's really important, and that is that our bodies actually make fructose. And that's, <laughs> in, the, in the context of survival, that's a great thing, right? That uh, you could activate a mechanism in your body such that it would make more fructose so you could make body fat and survive. But these days, maybe it's not the best news. And you might then ask, well, what is causing our bodies to make fructose if it's such a bad thing these days? What are we doing to make that happen? It turns out that one of the most powerful influences on the pathway to make, and it's called the polyol pathway, P-O-L-Y-O-L. -O -O the one of the most important influence is when the body feels as if it's dehydrated. 
When it's dehydrated or feels it's dehydrated, an enzyme is activated called aldose reductase, aldolase reductase, aldose reductase, sorry, and aldose is the sugar. And aldose reductase is involved in converting glucose, blood sugar, into fructose. And that'll be on the quiz. So everybody has to remember that. Anyway, the body thinks it's dehydrated. It makes more fructose. How does the body think it's dehydrated? It does so because the body is very sensitive to sodium levels. When you get dehydrated, your sodium level goes way up. You see somebody in the emergency room who's really dehydrated, their sodium level is sky high and you have to very judiciously bring it down by giving them an IV slowly that is low in sodium. So that's the body sensor that's telling it that it's telling the body that we can't find water. Sodium goes up. Well, it turns out that you can raise your sodium just by eating a bag of chips, just by eating you know a lot of added salt and parking yourself in front of the playoffs, in front of TV, eating a bag of pretzels with salt. Your sodium level is going to go up and immediately you're going to activate the conversion of glucose into fructose, uric acids produced, and guess what? You make body fat. You become insulin resistant. And you know, for a long time, we've known that people on a higher salt diet have a dramatic increased risk for becoming obese, a dramatic increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And we've certainly known the hypertension part of that story for a very long time, but we didn't understand the mechanism. So then you might ask, well, why is the body making fat if it thinks it's dehydrated. How and why, right? Why would you want to make fat if you're, if you're dehydrated? And I think the image I'd like to give you would be a very unique animal that has the ability to spend three weeks without drinking water and walking across the desert because it has a hump on its back. And if you look inside that hump, what will you find? You're not going to find water. You're going to find fat. Inside the camel's hump is fat. Yeah, it uses the fat as an energy resource, sure. But when the camel and Melanie and I burn fat, we form two things, carbon dioxide that we breathe out and water. Body fat becomes what we call metabolic water. That's the advantage of making body fat when your body thinks it's dehydrated. It's why whales have so much blubber. Yeah, it's an energy depot. We get that. But whales don't stop along the way and find a spring in the middle of the ocean. Hummingbirds, prior to their epic trips of thousands of miles, they have 40% of their body weight is fat. And what do you, if you want a hummingbird in your backyard... What do you put out there? You put a hummingbird feeder and you fill it with sugar, sugar water, because it then makes the fructose in the sugar water becomes, uh, ultimately stimulates the body to make fat. You know, this is interesting and it, it really starts to fill in a lot of blanks. I mean, we knew this about salt consumption and, and obesity. So it's not just avoiding the fructose, but we've got to be cognizant of the fact that, hey, your body can make fructose as well through this polyol pathway, and that is stimulated by adding a lot of salt to your food. Now, if you do that, if you add a lot of salt or you have a soup that at a restaurant you know darn well it's really salty, drink a lot of water afterwards, and that will tend to dilute it down and 
reduce your production of fructose and therefore uric acid. When we were evolving, wouldn't we have died from dehydration before we'd have the ability to store fat and relieve that dehydration? Yeah. And understand these are processes that take place over hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of years. In the acute sense, it isn't going to help you. But if generally over years and years and over generations and generations, there's less available water because presumably it's you know tied up, frozen in the in the polar caps, less fr- water available, then having a source of metabolic water would be an advantage. So these are very, very minimal advantages, but they become relevant because they play out over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And again, Those of our primate ancestors that ended up surviving didn't survive because they became fat. They just had a tiny advantage, a little bit more body fat in comparison to those who didn't have that uricase enzyme gene issue and therefore didn't make that little bit more fat. I'm not saying that our primates, you know, were walking around with big bellies. No, not at all. But just a slight advantage played out over a long period of time, you know, is selected for in terms of genetic natural selection. It's a little bit of an advantage, but over time it gets amplified. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked Farm Direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. 
It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted. And it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. So like temporally today, did we learn now sodium equals this effect? So like, is there a difference between somebody on a chronically slightly high elevated sodium diet compared to a low sodium diet with a bolus of sodium at one moment? Yes, it is the bolus. It is the acute elevation of the sodium that is the real problem here. And again, if you know a person does get exposed to you know a, a high salt food, you know, then by all means that can be diluted down. And and understand that interestingly, as you might infer or expect, the high level of sodium not only activates the production of fructose, but even its metabolism into uh, uric acid by activating an enzyme called fructokinase, which is the first enzyme involved in fructose metabolism. And, you know, I, I would say that one of the issues with people taking water pills is, of course, their sodium levels might go up, right? Because they become dehydrated. And water pills, what we call diuretics, are traditionally dramatically associated with elevated uric acid. So, you know, there, there is a suite of, of drugs that are associated with elevation of uric acid, and the diuretics are on that list. So are things like beta blockers for high blood pressure, omeprazole, an acid-blocking drug used by, well, that type of drug used by 15 million Americans, over the, many of them over-the-counter, dramatically associated with increased uric acid. Uh, even aspirin and even Viagra are all associated with increasing uric acid. Aspirin? What is the part of aspirin? You know, I don't know the part of it, but aspirin consumption, even 80 milligrams per day, is seen to be associated with an elevated uric acid level. Testosterone, drugs for Parkinson's like levodopa, a breathing drug, lung drug called theophylline, even the artificial sweetener of xylitol, a sugar alcohol, these are all associated with elevation of uric acid. I, of course, put a, the, this list in the book. And so, you know, we can come at this issue, the elevation of uric acid, from so many vantage points. Look at the drugs you're taking. Certainly look at your diet and, you know, consider the addition of some quercetin, some vitamin C, which augments our ability to excrete uric acid. A lot of things, you know, a lot of tools we put in the toolbox here to help bring uh, uric acid under control without re resorting to a drug. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't take drugs for elevated uric acid, but I am saying that, you know, as it relates, for example, to quercetin, one study of 22 males given who had mild elevation, these are young men with elevation of their uric acid, 500 milligrams of quercetin over eight weeks 
drop their uric acid level, no other changes, drop their uric acid level by 8%, which is really quite significant. So there's a lot that can be done without resorting to drugs. And again, you know, I'm a medical doctor. Drugs are not foreign to me. They're not rejected. There's a time and a place. You know, the purpose of the book, though, is to call out the importance of elevation of uric acid, A, B, give you the tools to bring it under control. Well, I cannot thank you enough for doing all of that. Listeners, you have got to get drop acid. It is so incredible. It dives so deep into everything that we talked about. And then like Dr. Perlmutter said, it has so many resources for things to look at. He has his love diet that you can follow to lower your own uric acid levels. So I really, really can't thank you enough. And that actually is perfect because my last question, I don't know if you remember it from last time, but it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Well, there are a lot of things I'm grateful for every day. And that's really part of part of my my daily routine is to stop and just be with those aspects of my life that I'm grateful for. Having uh, wonderful children, a wonderful marriage, it gives my life meaning. One thing I maybe didn't mention last time, I think when you asked me the question, is I'm grateful for the the fact that I have a particular skill and that I've identified that particular skill and that I'm exploiting that particular skill, which is the ability to take seemingly complex information and make it understandable for many people. There are a lot of things I can't do. I'm terrible at ping pong. I'm the, not the best snow skier, and I don't like diving off the high dive. I'm here to admit that. But I have a, a particular skill, and that is to look at, as you see with drop acid, this can be daunting information, but to really break it down so as many people can benefit from it as, as I can reach. So I'm grateful that, that I was able to identify that and that I have this skill in, in the first place. And I'm always grateful for people like you who are out there exploring stuff and making information known. Maybe you don't fully subscribe to everything that your guests are talking about, but at least it's out there and it's not judged. You know, it's this is information, people are talking about it, here's the information, and you know, it, it's not presented in, in such a way that, you know, that you necessarily have to subscribe to it, but it's out there and it's worth looking at. So. I honor you for that. And, and I have to say, I honor everybody who gives me the opportunity to spend time with them. And, and this was a particularly nice, uh, nice interview, very kind and in-depth and well-researched on the front end. So please know that was very much appreciated. Oh, thank you so much. I am just so honored and grateful. I mean, I've been a follower of your work for years, 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 ever since Grain Brain. So to have you on the show for Brainwash and now this for Drop Acid, it has just been absolutely wonderful. And I am also so, so grateful that you touched on that one thing that's really important to me is just being open to all the information, because I, I really think that's the only way we can find truth is if we are just listening to everything and, and um, finding, you know, what works for us. Well, you're right. And, and it, it's unfortunately so missing in our, in our day-to-day lives these days, you know, it's called cognitive empathy. And that is the ability to try on another person's point of view, whether, you know, you may not agree with it, but at least be with it. You know, this was the agora, the marketplace where ideas were shared. And we just don't seem to do that so much anymore. It's 
my way is the only way, and we won't make progress if it's only my way. I have to listen to the views of other people and be willing to accept the fact, you know, years ago, I was all in on the low-fat diet. I mean, fat was the devil. You know, I would put my patients on a low-fat diet because it's the best I knew. And how wrong that turned out to be. And it's so important to listen and be able to change with the science and be, you know, be able to be malleable as it relates to ideology. I could not agree more. Thank you so, so much. Please, please keep doing what you're doing. Oh, Melanie, thank you. Do you have another book coming out? It's not in the works yet, but I think that the natural next book is going to be the drop acid recipe book. I'm, I'm sure that's coming. I, we haven't talked about it yet, but I, you know, it'll be, uh, we have 40 recipes in this book, but it'll be a whole book dedicated to lowering uric acid or lowering uric values, LUV. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for all that you do. And hopefully we can talk again in the future. Thanks, Melanie. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got it.